A tiger tamer who went to sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor, and coming up this month... He must be really the most hated figure in an 18th century context, certainly the most hated English subject. Edward Valance on Thomas Paine. They say that it's punishment, it's torture, it's a violation of the women's struggling bodies. And June Purvis on the suffragettes. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later. But first, let me hand you over to the magazine's features editor, Rob Attar. Thanks, Dave. In Barack Obama's inauguration speech earlier this year, he quoted the words of an 18th-century British radical thinker, Thomas Paine. Paine was a key influence on both the American and the French revolutions, but back in his home country, he was actually deeply unpopular. Edward Vallance has written about Paine in our latest issue, and I've been speaking to Edward about Paine's legacy and why people in Britain were burning him in effigy 200 years ago. For those listeners who don't know much about Thomas Paine, could you please briefly explain who he was and why he was significant? Thomas Paine was a political pamphleteer and activist of the 18th century. He's mainly famous in an English context for writing the work The Rights of Man, which was actually an answer to another work by Edmund Burke, which was his reflections on the revolution in France condemning the French Revolution. And Paine's work was a staunchly Republican work that was answering Burke's analysis and making a very clear statement about the rights of individuals in contrast to Burke's argument which was that rights were really the product of history and custom and so forth. That's how he's known in an English context so he's mainly known as a kind of Republican, radical Republican pamphleteer but he's also a figure unusually in terms of the British radical tradition who's known in an international context as well because he emigrated to America right at the moment where the colonies were coming to to act a revolt against Britain and he then becomes a very very famous propagandist in that context for the cause of independence, writing the pamphlet Common Sense, which is seen as really first encapsulating that argument for independence. So in an American context, he's very well known and he seems a kind of honorary founding father, really, somebody to equate with the Thomas Jeffersons and Benjamin Franklins of this world. He also spent quite a bit of time in France as well and was honored as a citizen of the French Republic because of his efforts through things like the rights of man to defend the revolution, although that 
that turns out rather sickly for him because the French Revolution moves so quickly and Payne himself is not able to speak French very well, read it very well, and that he finds himself coming at a cropper and actually spends a number of years in prison in France and is only released through the efforts of the American ambassador to France. So he's really this incredible figure in terms of his international repute and you know that title of citizen of the world which is applied to him really does have a lot of resonance. What do you think motivated his radical politics? I think Payne was motivated by his own experiences and by his exposure to the ideas of the Enlightenment. In terms of the ideas of the Enlightenment, Payne was also somebody who was very interested in terms of science, innovation and technology. He actually spent a lot of his time doing things like devising steel span bridges, various other sorts of inventions. So he's interested in that whole sort of radical ferment, part of which has a political aspect and is about this ideals of universal rights and liberties. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is Payne's experience of injustice and also his own work as a figure in local government in an English context. He's somebody who holds local governmental office when he lives in Lewis in Sussex. And his experiences and frustrations there in terms of the political system in England. So to a certain extent, he's already radicalised both by his intellectual interests and also by his political experiences in England. And then that really becomes amplified once he moves into an American situation, which is already at a kind of revolutionary tipping point. So I think the thing that is clear is that Payne is genuinely motivated by the sense of injustice and the sense to want to create a more egalitarian society. He's not somebody who's clearly trying to make us amounts of money from his writings. For example, he's quite relaxed about the creation of pirated editions of his most famous work in a British context, The Rights of Man. So he's doing this to try and get his ideas across, to try and get this more egalitarian society put into effect. Now, you mentioned earlier that Payne was known as an honorary founding father in America, but I think I'm right to say in Britain he was actually quite unpopular in his time. Why was this? He's incredibly unpopular. <laughs> he must be really the most hated figure in an 18th century context, certainly the most hated English subject. It's reckoned that shortly after the publication of his Rights of Man, approximately something like a sixth of the population, the adult population of England at the time, may have participated in so-called pain-burning demonstrations where basically effigies of pain were set up and then set fire to in kind of mock hangings, mock immolations. And this was in the wake of Payne actually having been convicted in absentia for seditious libel for the rights of man. And for that reason, Payne actually fled to the security of revolutionary France. So there's a lot of hostility to Payne. He's seen as being unpatriotic, a traitor, somebody who wants to destroy British institutions, namely the monarchy, but he's also seen as being inimical to the church as well because Payne's own religious views were actually a lot closer to deism, to the idea of a kind of God of reason. He wasn't a member of the sort of established Church of England. So there's a lot of antipathy to Payne. And even though he has support amongst radical groups within Britain, for example, the emerging London Corresponding Society and other corresponding societies, which are working class political organizations, organizations, even these organizations have a kind of ambivalent relationship with him because they find that his rhetoric, which is very much, as I said, informed by Enlightenment ideals and is very pro-France, pro-America as well, this doesn't really sit well with the language of British rights and liberties going back to, say, Magna Carta and things like the Bill of Rights and priests in the wake of the Glorious Revolution. So even radicals have a kind of ambivalent relationship with pain.
So he, he was really a one-off then in a British context? Certainly in the context of the 18th century, he's very unusual. And he's unusual in the context of the tradition of British radicalism itself because of the way in which he departs from that language of an ancient constitution of Magna Carta, Petition of Rights, Bill of Rights. Payne rejects that appeal to past historically created liberties and is very much invested in this idea of natural rights, inalienable rights, not rights created by custom and history. And that's very different from a lot of British or radical movements, including the London Correspondent society, including later on, for example, the Chartist. He's also different, though, because there are other figures, other contemporaries, for example, Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin, who are also radical and also indebted to this milieu of Enlightenment values. But where Payne differs from them is he's much more interested in arguing for immediate political action. Godwin and Wollstonecraft are interested in things like education, transforming how people are brought up, and that then affecting their political consciousness. For pain that's much too much of a drawn out process he wants to see things happen now people are poor now people are oppressed now their situation needs to change and so pain is different from those kind of enlightenment influenced radicals as well because of the way in which he really wants to get things done now the way in which he's a polemicist and a pamphleteer not just an airy fairy thinker if you like so he was really much closer to french and american way of thinking than british thinking maybe yeah, and that becomes a real problem because of the international context. Once revolutionary France and Britain are at war, that pro-French rhetoric has a clear taint of treason, has a taint of, of a fifth column emerging within British society. And so what you see in the wake of that is these corresponding societies, which had also occasionally indulged in exaggerated praise of the French revolutionaries at the same time as they were using this language of Magna Carta, start to drop that pro-French rhetoric as well and just concentrate on this idea of British liberties because of both public hostility to them and also state repression as well, treason trials and so forth and trials of sedition. So it becomes very dangerous to use the kind of language and arguments that Payne is making and a lot of British radicals retreat from it. So what you see in the 19th century is you get a much more patriotic tone being put across in terms of radical movements. It's now 200 years after his death. Has Britain come to cherish Thomas Paine yet? I think we're getting to appreciate him a bit more, but we're certainly nowhere near the kind of level of adulation of pain that goes on, mainly in an American context. Even, for example, in the places where his life has been commemorated, for example, in his birthplace of Thetford Norfolk, the statue to him in Thetford Norfolk was actually paid for by Americans, not by the people of Thetford itself. And there was actually quite a bit of dispute as to whether they should have a statue to their native son. And I think that the key reason for that is that we remain a monarchy and Payne was a Republican and Republicanism remains very much a kind of minority political position. And to some extent that's really unfortunate because I think Payne is not somebody who should be, as it were, pigeonholed into one modern political camp whether that's on the right or the left. There's actually a lot of Payne's vision that would appeal to people we now define as being conservatives or liberals, as well as people who would define themselves perhaps being socialists or of the left. Although 
Payne was one of the early advocates for the sort of form of social welfare. He wanted old age pensions and child support and support for the unemployed paid for through progressive taxation. He was also a proponent of small government and he was very much in favour of free trade. And so in that sense, he's very much a figure who should resonate with conservatives as well. So in some senses, it's unfortunate that he's got pigeonholed as a radical Republican. And that's the only way in which in the British context we see him. But I think that is starting to change. And the celebrations that we're seeing this year, both in his birthplace in Thetford and also in his second hometown, if you like, of Lewis in Sussex, are going a long way to rehabilitating him and showing him in a much more positive light as somebody who has something very valuable to say about society and the way to make a fairer society. Do you think we can see Payne's legacy on the modern world? As I said in my piece, he's been invoked by all sorts of modern politicians, most notably, of course, recently by Barack Obama in his inauguration speech. And I think he has a legacy in the present day because... He's one of the few writers that you can look at from the late 18th century where his political writings still seem to have an incredible amount of immediacy. He's an incredibly gifted writer, an incredibly fresh writer, and his writing's incredibly uncluttered by the backward-looking allusions to history and classical works that a lot of his contemporaries indulged in. For that reason, they're very accessible. In some ways as well, he's somebody who's very forward-thinking in terms of the way in which he uses media to get his message across, and that makes him seem a very modern figure too. In fact, some people have described him as a kind of apostle of the internet and so on because of the way in which he wasn't completely obsessed by this idea of the ownership of his works and was ready to see his works reproduced and copied by various other people in order to get his message across. So he's sort of in favour of the free download, if you like, of the rights of man and his, his various other pamphleteering and campaigning works, even going back to his early years in England where he was doing innovative things like combining mass petitioning campaigns with pamphleteering to try and argue for better rights and conditions. So you can see all sorts of resonances with the use of new media and political campaigning today and also with the kind of more immediate language that we're used to today, the much more kind of accessible political language. I think now politicians are encouraged to speak to the common man, as it were. And Payne's a prime example of somebody who got right away the way to talk to a very, very broad audience. So in that sense, as a political communicator, I think he's a very modern figure. And there's a lot that he says that has to resonate in terms of the actual content of his message. I mean, if you look at the second part of The Rights of Man, what he has to say there about, for example, his system of equitable taxation, which is based on death duties, and we've had all this debate in recent years about the equality of that system, is really resonant with the present day. And there's somebody who's trying to wrestle with these problems of how we both let people have their individual rights and also ensure that vulnerable people in society are protected too. So I think a lot of what his message was still has a great deal of relevance today as well. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
That was Edward Valance, who's a regular contributor to BBC History magazine and the author of A Radical History of Britain, of Visionaries, Rebels and Revolutionaries, and the Men and Women Who Fought for Our Freedoms, which is published by Little Brown. His feature on Thomas Paine graces the June issue of the magazine, which you can buy in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.60. Even better, you can save money and ensure that you never miss an issue by subscribing. Now, we've got great subscription deals available whether you're in the UK or overseas. Just go to our website, bbchistorymagazine.com, for details on them. Incidentally, you'll also find a rundown of what's on history-wise on TV and radio in the UK on our website, among other things as well. Anyway, on to the suffragettes. The haunting picture of the forcibly fed suffragette alone in her prison cell has become symbolic of women's campaign for the vote. And it was 100 years ago, in 1909, that the first suffragette hunger strike was carried out in Holloway Prison, London. Historian June Purvis writes about force feeding in this month's magazine. June is Professor of Women's and Gender History at the University of Portsmouth, and earlier she spoke to our Deputy Editor, Sue Wingrove. Um, now, June, to begin, could we just establish briefly exactly who did have the vote in 1909? The right to the parliamentary vote was based on the ownership or occupation of property of a minimum value. But the point is that it was restricted only to men, which meant that not all men could vote. It was about two-thirds of men who could vote. But no women were allowed to vote, and neither were those who were in prison, who were criminals, or the mentally ill in what they called their lunatic asylums. So the suffragettes regarded that as very unjust. Okay, so in uh, 1903, the WSPU, which is the Women's Social and Political Union, uh, was founded by Emmeline Pankhurst, and their methods included lobbying, deputations to Parliament, marches and the like. But in 1908, they, they stepped up the tactics a bit, didn't they? What happened? A very anti-women suffrage MP was put in place. That was Herbert Asquith. And he told the suffragettes that if they could show there was wide support throughout the country for women's suffrage, then he would be more inclined to introduce it. So they organised a massive demonstration, or deputation perhaps I should call it, in Hyde Park on the 21st of June 1908. 40,000 women were in that procession, and it was very colourful, and it attracted over a million spectators. But Asquith's heart was unmoved. And about a week later, when women were leading another deputation to Parliament to ask for women's suffrage, the police treated them very violently and flung them to the ground or into the swaying crowd. And two suffragettes, um, Edith New and Mary Lee, were outraged by the way their fellow comrades were being treated. And so they took a taxi to Downing Street, the Prime Minister's residence, and threw two stones through the window. So that was the first willful damage that was committed by the suffragettes. It wasn't a dictate from the leadership of the WSPO, and you find throughout the movement that a lot of women took their own individual action. And then, as we know, from 1912, they engaged in widespread attacks on public and private property. Okay, now um, one such woman was Marion Wallace Dunlop. Uh, what did she do? On the 29th of June 1909, she printed a section of the Bill of Rights on the wall in St Stephen's Hall in the House of Commons. 
And for this, she was arrested and sentenced to one month in the second division in prison. Now, she was angry about this because she wanted to be treated as a political protester. And so she went on hunger strike. And then, after 91 hours, she was released. Okay, now, why did she want to be seen as a political prisoner? Why was that important to her? At that time in prison, there were three divisions, the first, the second, and the third. In the third division were placed the common criminals like prostitutes and thieves. In the first division were placed political prisoners like Irish nationalists who were campaigning for home rule in Ireland. And so it was quite common, in fact, for the suffragettes to be put even in the third division. It was often arbitrary which division they went in. So they wanted to be taken seriously because their cause was morally just. They weren't committing a crime like a prostitute or a thief. She was the first one to go on hunger strike and other imprisoned suffragettes began um, to use the hunger strike as well. So what was the government's reaction to this? Well, the government um, thought they cannot let any other suffragettes be released in the way that Marion Wallace Dunlop had been released because they thought they were being made fools. And so they decided to forcibly feed the suffragettes. And that was a very horrendous experience, it was either up the nostril, with the tube pushed down to the stomach, or by a rubber tube pushed down the throat and into the stomach, and that really was the most painful method. And because it was accompanied by overpowering physical violence, the water held you down, and the, the doctor pushed this horrible fatty liquid down, it was often seen as a form of rape. Yes, and many of the suffragettes describe um, describe it as an outrage. They seem to feel that it was a punishment, really, rather than ordinary hospital treatment, which was how the authorities described it. What did the WSPU leadership have to say about this? Well, the WSPU leadership condemned forcible feeding in the strongest terms possible. They said it was punishment, it was torture... It was a violation of women's struggling bodies. And in many ways, it was a further spur to action for some of the women because you had an all-male liberal government performing these acts on defenceless women in their own individual prison cells. So, in a way, it radicalised the suffragettes? I think so. It, it did a number of them. So how did the press and public react to this phenomenon? Well, the press was largely supportive of the government, particularly up to the beginning of 1914. The public, I think, were divided about it, but forcible feeding in particular and generated a fierce debate in the press. Did anyone actually die as a result of forcible feeding? No, um, no one actually died, but a lot of, for a lot of the women, their health was impaired, as you can imagine. Some of the women went mad... One was Rachel Peace, an embroidered arrest. She'd already had a couple of nervous breakdowns and she was afraid she would go mad when she was forcibly fed, and she did. And she had to spend the rest of her life in and out of lunatic asylums, as they called them then. And Lady Constant Lytton economically maintained her throughout her life. Lady Constant Lytton is another example of a woman whose health was impaired by 
43 days. She had a stroke in 1912 and then she died quite young in 1923. Okay. Now, finally, could you just remind us how and when women did eventually get the vote? In 1918, certain categories of women over the age of 30 were granted the parliamentary vote. That is, women who are householders, wives of householders, occupiers of property of £5 or more annual value, or if they were the university graduates. So the 1918 Act didn't enfranchise all women over 30, but only certain categories of women. There's about 8 million women. And it wasn't until 10 years later, until 1928, that women could vote on equal terms with men, that is, when they reached the age of 21. That was an interview with Professor June Purvis of the University of Portsmouth, whose research has focused on the women's suffrage movement. We'd love to get your feedback on the podcast and the magazine. To help us canvas your views, we've set up a readers' panel. It's easy to become a panellist. All you have to do is go to www.bbcmagazineinsiders.com and follow the instructions. So that's it. Thanks once again for listening. Next month's podcast will traverse the broad sweep of history, taking in Galileo's lunar legacy, medieval petitioning, heroes of the Industrial Revolution, and the story of Big Ben. Crikey, that's a lot. In the meantime, you can always listen to our past podcasts by going to bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash podcast.asp or you can follow our fascinating Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash bbchistorymag or perhaps even just get yourself a copy of the magazine and spend a quiet hour or so just reading without any further sensory stimulation. <laughs>